0: Hello and welcome to the Low-Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 8 on November 18th, 2016, coming to you out of the Low-Tech Recording Room in St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you for joining us. Today's main topic is meat, which is the first topic in a series on food. We'll also have our weekly regular news roundup, research updates, and an event calendar, as well as our DRY feature, which, in keeping with this week's theme, is jerky. I do want to point out that at a later point in this podcast, I will be talking very briefly about butchering animals. I won't be going into graphic detail about how to do that, but I will be talking about how I feel about it and what it is like for me to do that, because I think that is one of the often misunderstood parts about butchering animals yourself. Today's main topic is meat. Which can be a little of a strange one for us because we have a lot of friends who are vegetarians and espouse the ecological benefits of vegetarianism, which you know we can certainly understand. A lot of other people are vegetarian because of um, animal welfare issues, and we understand those as well. But we want to come at this from a historical point of view and also look forward to a way that animals and humans coexist in a way that meat eating is a part of our diet, but not to the detriment of the animals or the environment. Humans have been eating meat for a long time. We're not really sure when hunting started, but it was millions of years ago. One hypothesis that helps explain why meat is so important to us is the expensive tissue hypothesis. This is basically the idea that your brain is a very metabolically expensive organ. If you think about your house in the summer, if you run an air conditioner, you notice your electric bills go up. Well, the brain is kind of the air conditioner of the human body. When it's running, it takes a lot of energy. Almost 20 to 25% of our metabolic energy goes to just keeping our brains running. In order to fuel such a large brain, we have to save energy elsewhere. And most other primates have a much larger gastrointestinal system than human beings do. And so... By limiting the size of our guts, we were able to expand our brains. And this didn't happen overnight, but there was an interplay between higher quality food and a larger brain. As we ate higher quality food, we didn't need as much of a gut to digest it, and it freed up energy, which allowed for uh, selection for large brains, which in turn gave us better food. So... Meat is one of the best foods we can eat physiologically because it's so close to our own makeup that our bodies are able to absorb a lot more nutrients from it. It's very dense in terms of calories, fat, um, nutrients, vitamins, and all the things that we need to metabolize to stay alive and healthy are found in meat. And just as one could have a largely or almost exclusively plant-based diet, there are societies that have almost exclusively meat-based diet. Now, these are much rarer than vegetarian societies. Um, The uh, Alaskan Inuit and other people living in the Arctic Circle come to mind because there just isn't that much biomass that's edible to humans there except for animals, and they can eat 90, almost 90% of their diet could come from meat. So getting back to the idea of the expensive tissue hypothesis, one way, another way, in which we are able to save on a large digestive system is by what I like to call pre-digestion. And this is basically we chop up, mash, grind, cook, stew, soak, and otherwise prepare our foods before they go into our bodies. This starts the food breaking down and freeing up otherwise... Blocked up chemicals that our bodies wouldn't be able to get to for example flax seeds These are one of my favorites because a lot of times when you buy a multi-grain loaf in the grocery store And it says flax seed and you see the flax seeds all throughout the bread. Well Your body doesn't actually absorb those if you're eating raw flax seed without grinding them Your body is just passing them through you might as well just be eating some other type of fiber You have to grind those flax seeds because our bodies aren't able to break apart that shell of the seed in our normal gut reaction. So you have to grind it first. So you shouldn't see the flaxseed if you're eating a flaxseed loaf. Anyway, that type of predigestion really frees up a lot of the metabolic energy that allows us to run our brains. And if you were to plot the size of the brain and the size of the gut in human evolution, the gut is constantly reducing and the brain is constantly enlarging. You can see the same thing when you look at other primates, like gorillas, for example, who are largely folivores, meaning they eat leaves. They have huge guts, and it takes a large amount of their metabolism to wean the calories they need out of that very nutrient-poor food that they've chosen to eat. Other primates do eat meat. Chimps, for example, hunt colobus monkey. And the sharing of meat and the cooperation that we see among chimpanzees when they're hunting is a really vital way for primatologists to understand the social lives of chimps. Meat is often shared with sexual partners. Meat is often shared with someone who will give you a a nitpick, right? They'll clean and groom you in exchange for some meat. Meat is also used as a way to show dominance or social order with higher-ranking people, excuse me, higher-ranking chimpanzees getting more meat than others. So fine, we evolved eating meat, but as many would say today, we could live now as complete vegetarians. And though this is true in a superficial sense, meaning we could get all the nutrients we need from plants, we gain a lot of dense energy from dairy, which is also derived from animals, and some people debate the merits of that, Um, but we get even more dense energy from meat. And this week we had an excellent guest blog from Holly Dressel, a Canadian author, filmmaker, speaker, and researcher who studies environmental issues, health, and alternative economies. And she argues really persuasively, I think, in her post on Tuesday that large animals have a place in the ecosystem. And if we get rid of these large ungulates, because we've already lost the, the bison and other large ungulates that lived naturally in the environment, we might have a problem with our ecosystem. So we shouldn't avoid meat altogether, but we should avoid meat that is created in the industrial bowels of CAFOs. And if you haven't heard of CAFOs, Buckle up, because we're discussing them next, and if you've never heard of them, it can be a little unsettling the first time that this is brought to your attention. Although I imagine many of you have heard of and know quite a lot about CAFOs already. In my experience, most people are introduced to CAFOs, which stands for Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation, C-A-F-O. Most people are introduced to that by the 2008 documentary Food, Inc., If you haven't seen it yet, I I believe it's on Netflix, Uh, it's available other places online, wherever you find videos, you can probably find Food Inc. And if you haven't seen it yet, I'd say make it a point to watch it soon. It will illustrate in much more graphic detail everything I'm gonna be able to talk about today, and then some. Most of us are familiar with the idea that farming has become industrialized. We see combines, tractors, balers, we see the monocrops, crop dusters, the massive amounts of fertilizers, etc. we definitely understand, even if we're not farmers or we don't live in the country, we recognize that our farming has become industrial. It's less well known that meat production has also been industrialized. Sure, we know that they have large slaughterhouses, these large factories that have replaced the local butcher. Most of us know that. We know that meat used to come from farms and pasture lands, and it still does to some extent, especially out west. But more and more, it's coming from CAFOs. CAFOs are the industrial way to raise meat animals. It's thought to be the most efficient way in terms of resources, land, and time to raise a pound of meat, whether it's poultry, pig, or cow. So let's talk first about uh, chickens, and I do have to thank Glenn Stone at Wash U in the anthropology department for some of the material here that I'm going to be uh, admittedly cribbing right out of uh, his lectures and discussions. So uh, thanks for that, Glenn. So before the Great Depression, chickens were kept for eggs, and the chickens were only eaten as meat on unusual occasions, maybe a Sunday dinner or a particular particularly special day. And then in 1933... During the Great Depression, FDR was elected, and the National Poultry Improvement Plan increased production by studying disease control and breeding, and this made chicken meat much more common. Chickens grow from hatchlings to eatable size in a matter of months and are therefore one of the most efficient converters of vegetable matter into meat. If you're going pound for pound, chickens will convert The same calories of plants into more meat than cows will, for example. And that's just because they're small and they have a fast grow rate and they get up to butcherable size very quickly. Over the decades, efficiencies were introduced to increase the scale of productions. What we recognize as CAFOs today were really born of this efficiency, packing as many chickens as you can into a small space. But when you do that, you get a lot of diseases running rampant because they're too crowded. Antibiotics were fed as a matter of course. And this kept the disease loads down in these large overcrowded chickens' houses. And again, when I say overcrowded, I mean more population per square foot than the chickens would naturally tolerate. Uh, this is often about a square foot per chicken. Organic chickens need three feet for a chicken, so it's still not that much more space. The chickens often will engage in antisocial behavior, pecking and killing other chickens, and so sometimes they have to be debeaked, which is when they're very young, their beaks are snipped so that they don't have a pointy beak. They can't then break the skin of their fellow chickens. Um, there's a lot uh, going on here to make the chickens who like to be outside and you know foraging for a lot of their food and moving around throughout the day and roosting up high at night. There's a lot that has to be done to get them to thrive in this crowded, unusual environment. In addition to keeping the chickens uh, from developing bacterial diseases, the antibiotics also help them gain weight. Flooding the market with cheap and abundant chicken meat really changed the game for farmers, who weren't able to produce large enough amounts of chickens, nor market them and process them. So they had to buy into corporations that largely what they do is they work out a lease agreement with the farmer where the company provides a lot of the material, the chicken run, the chickens as hatchlings, the food, the antibiotics, everything. The farmer then provides the land and the labor, and then they shepherd them from hatchlings to adulthood, and then they're sent off to large production facilities. So the farmer is more of a poultry worker. On his or her own farm rather than an independent producer of chickens. So it's not just the chickens whose way of life has changed but it's also the chicken farmer. Pigs really didn't enter CAFOs until the 1970s and a lot of the processing or a lot of the idea for pig CAFOs came from chicken CAFOs. Many pigs live in fully enclosed facilities which huge fans that circulate the air Feces and urine flow out through a graded floor into large containment ponds. And sometimes these ponds, which you can see on Google Earth, they're large, oddly colored ponds outside of these large buildings. These ponds are often breached by floods uh, in the spring, and thousands of gallons of untreated porcine effluent flow out into the local environment and wreak havoc, not only with the ecosystem, but with humans that encounter it and get sick. Pigs are bred, raised, and killed without ever leaving the facility. Remember, these are animals that are as smart as dogs, and I'm not against eating pigs, but I think whatever you're eating should be treated with respect. And I really don't think the KFO respects the animal as much as it could. Furthermore, these facilities are often subsidized through tax breaks and other government largesse, but the public picks up the tab for things like MRSA and other problems to which these KFOs contribute. Now, MRSA. Or if you're a, uh, if you like acronym spelled out, it's methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which I can't pronounce properly, I'm sure. But basically, MRSA is an antibiotic-resistant bacterium that kills more than an estimated 72,000 people per year in the U.S. But that's just according to the CDC. So let me repeat that: 72,000 people each year are dying due to MRSA. When antibiotics were invented everybody was excited to be able to treat previously incurable diseases. As the antibiotics became more widespread, diseases adapted and became resistant. Every decade or so, new antibiotics had to be developed to stay ahead of the evolving bacteria. Since CAFOs were introduced, however, the heavy use of antibiotics in animals has increased. And this, then, increases the rate at which the bacteria are exposed to the drugs and therefore they can evolve more quickly and build up resistance perhaps much faster than we can develop new antibiotics. This is kind of a treadmill that we've gotten onto. We need the antibiotics. We use more and more of them. They become ineffective. We need new antibiotics. We use more and more of them, and so on. This is where MRSA comes from. Cows are also grown on CAFOs. Largely, they're kept in open-air corrals for their final fattening up, where they're fed a rich diet, often including a lot of corn, and their stomachs really aren't evolved to eat corn. Uh, Many of you have probably read uh, Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma, in which he described beef CAFOs more fully than I will here. I highly recommend that book. Not only does it discuss CAFOs, um, as well as organic factories and alternatives, but he also has one of the few discussions of hunting that I've seen in the literature, in the popular literature, that for a non-hunter really describes the feeling of going out into the woods to hunt. Um, so I would, I would highly recommend that if you haven't already read it. Many of the same problems endemic to pig CAFOs are present in beef CAFOs. That is uh, the effluent, the confinement of animals, antibiotics, feeding them food that may or may not be well adapted to their bodies. And the result of these CAFOs is a high availability of meat. This easy availability of meat has increased Americans' consumption from a quarter pound per day 100 years ago, to a half a pound per day. This has impacts beyond the meat animal itself, because for every calorie of meat, the animal must consume at least seven calories of plants. So, this sets up an interesting uh, word problem for us if you're interested in math. So, if the average American consumes 2,700 calories per day, according to the USDA, and 21% of that is from meat, this means that eating a normal distribution of meat. That 567 calories of that 2,700 calories per day is from meat. Those calories represent 4,067 plant calories, right? The animals had to eat 4,067 plant calories to gain the 567 calories that we're able to eat from them. This brings the total amount of real plant consumption the average American makes per day to 6,200 calories. Now that's the 2,700 calories per day, minus the 567 meat calories, plus the 4,067 plant calories that were needed to make the meat. That's a lot of calories, that's a lot of plant calories. Really, you could have three people living off the plant calories consumed by a single person or a single American if meat was removed from the equation. Again, I'm not arguing that we do that on a massive scale. I'm just trying to illustrate how expensive in non-monetary terms, the eating of meat is it really adds to the pressure on our agricultural system having to produce so much meat. So what am I advocating for? Well, really, I'm not saying remove meat from our diets. I think meat can be an important part of a balanced diet. I think we eat too much of it in the United States. I think if each person was eating a pound or half a pound a week, you could make that work. That's about what my family eats. And we're perfectly healthy and happy. We enjoy it. We usually eat one meal on the weekends, and I'll talk more about that later. What I am really advocating for is not a specific amount per person. I'm really looking at eating less meat and doing it in accordance with the three principles of the Low Technology Institute. Number one, mimic nature. Number two, utilize surpluses. And number three, prefer simplicity over complexity or complication. So what would that look like? In nature, humans would hunt for food. And I'm not saying that we could all hunt, because that's not really possible at our population density. If everybody hunted, the wild animals would quickly be um, extinct. That's, that's just not possible. But we have adapted other ways to raise animals in more humane ways than CAFOs. And that brings us to utilizing the surplus. No predatory animal eats all of the flock. Of whatever they're hunting, right? No wolves eat the entire herd of caribou. It doesn't make sense to do that. Usually, what do the wolves do? Very famously and anecdotally, right? They pick off the weak, the young, and the old, and that's something that we should look at. Not that we should be eating sick animals, I wouldn't advocate for that, but we should be picking out certain animals that may not have the best survivable characteristics, right? Uh, If you have a flock of Six roosters, you only need one rooster to fertilize all the hens, so the other five roosters may very well find their way into your soup pot. And that would be really in line with kind of a natural selection, although it would be guided by it would be human selection. But it would still be a reasonable way to live off the surplus of your animals rather than eating into the principle. The simplicity thing gets a little more complicated. Ha! Huh. That's funny. Bad phrasing, but you know what I mean. It is so easy to go to the grocery store, at least on the surface, and pick up a package of meat. But to get that package of meat at the grocery store, there is an immense complicated line of factories, farms, transportation networks, and all kinds of other things going on behind that seeming simplicity. Now, what might be more simple is if we have... Local animals in our neighborhoods, say chickens in backyards, maybe a flock of sheep that's used to keep grass short around the neighborhood on the medians, you know, maybe a local shepherd. I know this sounds ridiculous, but there are places that use sheep instead of mowers to keep lawns short because sheep nibble the top of the grass rather than ripping it out by the roots like goats. So there are ways that we could integrate animals into our everyday, even urban lives, and grow meat that we could eat for ourselves. What does this do if we're growing a lot of the meat locally? Well, it reduces the amount we're eating. Number one, because I've slaughtered chickens, I've butchered deer, I've butchered uh, some lamb, and it is a process. And you're not going to be doing that and eating a half a pound of meat every day. You'd be up to your ears uh, in butchery projects. It would it would just be too much work for the payoff. And I think if everybody was a lot more involved in their meat, they'd eat a lot less, and that meat would probably be a lot better for you, because studies show that animals that live in accordance to what their bodies are adapted for produce better product. And not only that, they have a better life. And last, uh, this last spring, we raised, we got 18 fertilized eggs, 13 of them hatched. 12 of them made it out of the incubator, one's uh, belly button didn't close up, and a lot of people didn't know that. I didn't know that uh, chickens or baby chicks have belly buttons, which is kind of funny. Anyway, uh, its belly button didn't close up and it died, but the other 12 chicks all lived to adulthood. We had six cockerels, which would become roosters, and we had six pullets, which would become hens. We sold three of the hens to a friend. We kept three of the hens for ourselves and added them to our flock, and then the six boys... As they grew larger, they grew outgrew the space that we had for them. It was time for them to be butchered. And it was a interesting experience because I've butchered animals before, but largely uh, because I grew up hunting. And so I put out an email to a couple of friends in the neighborhood and said, hey, I'm going to be butchering the some chickens this evening. If you'd like to join us, you'd be welcome, but you don't have to. And to my surprise, a lot of my friends showed up and were extremely helpful in the butchering and cleaning of these chickens. And I think I can safely say that everybody found it to be a meaningful experience, and at least the next time they ate some chicken somewhere, they would think a little more about it because they'd been involved in the processing of chicken. And, you know, uh, for me, having grown them from hatchlings to adulthood, it was, you know, it's not something I, I did lightly, or not something I really enjoyed. And I will tell you that, you know, we may, took great pains to slaughter them in a way that they lost consciousness very quickly and they, and they died. I could feel their heart beating and then it would stop within five seconds of, um, of the cut. And I'm, I'm not going to go into too much detail about that. But I, I felt as, you know, their rearer and protector for their whole lives that they went in a very swift and painless fashion. And that brings me to hunting. I travel in fairly liberal social circles, and for many years I found hunting to be anathema to many people, even people that ate meat. How can you eat animals? How can you go out and kill a perfectly innocent animal, bring it home, butcher it, and eat it? That just seems very barbaric, and I've heard all kinds of things. And, you know, I used to feel embarrassed about it, having grown up on uh, hunted meat or hunting myself. And then, as I learned more about the industrial meat industry... I felt less embarrassed about it, and more embarrassed that I had been eating meat that came from such a system for so long. And I don't mean to cast shame on anybody who eats meat out of the industrial system today. I don't mean to alienate anybody. I'm just letting you know how I felt about it, and, you know, you're free to do what you like, but um, this is how I feel about it. And so, instead of switching to only pasture-raised, grain-fed, all the, you know, the best organic beef and chicken and everything that we could find, I decided to start hunting again. And there were a lot of reasons behind this, but, you know, one of them is the quality of life of the animal is the best it can be. Uh, a deer living in nature is living a completely natural, normal deer life. It has no constraints by humans. It's not being poked and prodded by a vet. It, nothing is being done to it artificially. I think it has much better quality of life than even the, the best-treated cows. And... In terms of the actual killing of the animal it's not something i take lightly and it's not something i frankly it's not something i really enjoy it's something that's part of the entire process and i feel like for me personally i feel better about eating meat if i've killed it myself because i know that the animal died quickly and i can say that most of the deer that i have harvested have died very quickly and i try and avoid shots that are too chancy and that might wound the deer and I try and be respectful to the animal whose life I'm about to end. And, it's, and I know it, it's kind of difficult to talk about. It might be difficult to listen to. But we have to realize that every piece of meat that you buy at the grocery store, it went through some process to kill it as well. And I, I guarantee you that the factory slaughterhouses, when they're you know um, butchering steers or killing cows, they don't give the animal the respect that I give And, you know, I could go vegetarian, and that would be, I think, the only way to respect the animal more than to let it live its life and to kill it quickly, and then to utilize the vast majority of the animal in my own in the next year. So for my own family's needs, we're two people right now, and I harvest uh, one deer a year, and we we had six chickens we butchered last spring, and that's enough meat for the entire year. That's about 60 pounds of meat, and... You know, we eat about between the two of us, we eat a pound of meat a week, maybe. But I can, I you know, clean the animal, um, skin it, butcher it, and then parcel that meat out through the year. We eat, um, we eat in hamburgers, roasts, I make jerky, as you saw in the DIY feature this week. I do a lot with it, and I feel like it's a good utilization of the animal. Now, if I had the space and the wherewithal, I, I might switch to sheep. And that might be something that we're going to be doing at the Institute in short order. I hope to have an announcement very soon about big plans and big changes that are coming to the Institute. But that's just a teaser for next week or the week after or the very near future. So um, one pie in the sky idea that I had, I kind of alluded to it earlier. But I think if you know we're raising our own animals in our own communities, I think that might be a valuable way forward. We can use them for the benefits that they provide during their their lifetimes with providing fertilizer for gardens, for providing landscaping service in the the case of sheep, and doing a lot of positive benefits for the surroundings, Um, not to mention pigs are a great user of scraps from the kitchen. So if you have kitchen scraps, instead of wasting all that food by letting it spoil in the refrigerator or throwing it out, heaven forbid you can give it to pigs, and they'll turn that into meat for later. Right they're, they're really what I would call the refrigerator of the Neolithic. I think I've mentioned that before, where they are a way to store food when you don't have refrigeration available. Very low-tech, very good way to store meat for long-term. Local scale, small scale, a reduced amount of meat being eaten, I think that might be a sustainable way forward. And by eating a smaller amount of meat at a more spread out time throughout the year, we can reduce the amount of refrigeration necessary, the transportation, and the large fossil fuel supported infrastructure that is the modern meat juggernaut. So I'm really going to end there for the discussion of the meat today. I would like to recommend that uh, you watch Food, Inc. and read Omnivore's Dilemma. I think they're both good starting points. If you haven't seen them already, I think they're a great starting point to describe a lot of what I talked about today in a lot more detail. This week's DIY feature is making jerky. I've been making jerky for years. Uh, There are a couple different ways to do it. You can search online and you will find many, many different recipes, and I recommend you do that. What I've given you this week is a very basic recipe that tastes great, I think, and it doesn't have too much spice or too, too much salt or anything like that. So if you want it spicier, spice it up. If you want it saltier, salt it up. And right now I'm using a food dehydrator that runs on electricity, but in the near future, I want to build a solar-powered dehydrator that's a lot bigger than the one I have right now because when we are drying vegetables and other things out of the garden, we have to usually run it in multiple batches over many, many days. It'd be much better if I could make a large one that we can have many, many trays and run a lot of plants and and meat through the dehydrator in a much shorter amount of time. Now, the basic premise of jerky is removing the water from the meat. The spoilage, if you were just to leave a slab of meat out on the counter, comes because bacteria and other microorganisms can travel throughout the meat using the basically liquid highway, right? They can connect to different parts of the meat, reproduce, eat the meat as it decays, because there's water present. They can move through that water conduit. Now, if you remove all the water, the bacteria become desiccated and trapped, and then eventually die, and they're unable because they're unable to move once that water's taken away. So as long as we remove the vast majority of the water, bringing the water content to something like five percent, ten percent, I guess would be pushing it, uh, you can safely store this jerky at room temperature uh, in an airtight container for for months and months and months. It's a very early way to keep meat. The ancient Incas had a word, charqui. For meat, that they would freeze dry, essentially, which is a type of making jerky. And that's actually where we get the word jerky in English. The basic process is slicing meat very thin. I used a meat slicer at work, which was lucky to have, but I've done it by hand and that works just fine too. And then soaking those slices in the brine, the marinade, that I describe on Thursday's post. Um, Usually I do that in the refrigerator for at least a day two days uh, I think is the ideal, three days will hold, it'll hold out for three days, but then it's starting to push it. And then I um, lay them out on the dehydrator, let some of the drippings drip off, and then uh, let them go at 155 degrees for, eh, usually it takes about eight hours, give or take a couple hours. So you have to monitor them. You still want it to bend, you don't want it to snap, but it still has to be dry enough. So it's a little bit of a feel thing um, when it's done. If you don't have a dehydrator, don't worry, you can do it in the oven with tin foil over the rack in the oven with holes poked between the different metal bars that hold uh, that make up the rack. Uh, with another cookie sheet underneath to catch any drippings. you can lay the meat out on there, put your oven at its lowest temperature. For me that's 170 Fahrenheit, and then crack the door open a little bit and let it run overnight. That's usually enough to do it. There are a couple other ways you could do it in a smoker, for example, but you'd want to look up more specific directions for smoking jerky on the internet rather than just wing it. So yeah, have a look at those. So let's have a look at this week in low tech news. We have a few stories on sustainability issues from what to do with food scraps and the UN's recipe contest to a conversation about the impacts of wood stoves. In all honesty, it seems most of my news sources were distracted this week for some reason. And I hope to have more stories for you in the next podcast. To see links to the stories we've discussed and more, visit the low-tech website, which is low-tech institute, That's all lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com, word, or by following the link in our podcast profile. And now, let's have a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. First, our mushrooms are moving forward. I did not update online, but I was just going to say that the mycelium, the root structure of the mushrooms, if you like, has started to spread through the substrate. It has lots of white, fingery, feathery things spreading across the uh, formerly horse manure um, in a box in my basement, so that's uh, fun to see. Hopefully, I will be able to break that box up and spread it out into other boxes to create much more mycelium or mushroom substrate than I would have been able to do otherwise. The deer hides from the deer I shot and my brother shot last week are completely covered in salt. And resting in my garage. After Thanksgiving I'll be tanning them and I'll have an update on how I did that and what chemicals I used and the process and the work that's involved in that. Now to the event calendar. Two weeks ago I announced our bread making workshop at Grovy's Provisions in St. Louis. Well, uh, we had to expand from one workshop to three because of demand, which is wonderful. And we're now running events on the 3rd, 10th, and 17th of December. They're all fully booked right now, but get in touch if you'd like to be added to the waitlist. You can see the blog entry on our website from October 31st for more information about this bread-making workshop. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Sweet for Violin 8, played by the Advent Chamber Orchestra. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning that you're free to use and share them as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio, and please give us a rating. It helps us to boost our audience reach. I'd be happy to have your feedback, which you can leave me on soundcloud.com lowtechpodcast, You can also find more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. And also reach me directly at lowtechinstitute. Again, that's all one word at gmail.com. Thanks and take care.